Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to talk about deadly religion. Father, would you open the word to us and us to the word? We ask for revelation for our minds and hearts. We would have tender hearts to hear your word, Lord, and be touched by it, not just understand it with the head. Write your law on our mind and heart today, and grace me, Lord, to speak it so it's your voice we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. An odd thing happens when God begins to really move in a family or a church or a city. The most angry and even violent reaction against it often comes from religious people. You would expect the opposite, that it would be those who don't believe that attack those who do believe. But until a spiritual awakening does to them some kind of financial or political harm, unbelievers really don't care what believers do. They just want to be left alone, but not religious people. For them, a move of God becomes a personal threat, and they will do whatever they can to stop it. I don't know how many of you have experienced this. I surely have. It's been remarkable. St. Paul was a classic example of this. As faith in Jesus began to spread, this rabbi did everything in his power to stop it, going to great lengths to imprison and even execute believers. Then... When he himself converted, those who had been his religious friends just days before tried to kill him. This scenario has been repeated over and over in different settings around the world throughout history. Those who claim the loudest to know God become his relentless opponents. Why is this? We need to understand it because this is exactly the problem facing the believers in the city of Smyrna. And frankly, it's a phenomenon we still face today. Revelation 2, verse 8. This is now the second letter of the seven that the Lord speaks. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The first and the last, who was dead and who, who has come to life, says this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna was a seaport about 35 miles north of Ephesus. The church there had been persecuted by Jews living in that city and was about to enter a season of intensified persecution, probably from the Roman government. Many would soon be arrested and thrown in prison. The Lord says he knows that following him had brought them suffering. Many were now poor probably through loss of jobs, being abandoned by spouses and disinherited by parents, raids on their homes and fields, or confiscation of property by authorities. And not only had many been imprisoned, but they also had to endure listening to the blasphemies spoken against Jesus, especially from Jews who rejected him as Messiah. Jesus says this hatred toward him only proved that Satan had deceived them. Their hearts had grown so hard, they were no longer worthy to be called Jews. Now, Jesus himself faced this phenomenon. We see it all the way through the Bible. Remember, as long as the religion is dead, as long as there's no power, as long as lives aren't being changed and nothing's happening, people don't care about your religion. But when God really shows up, when God really begins to move, when lives get changed, when people begin to get saved and really filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're, they're going on with God. Aha, now the sparks start flying. Isn't it interesting? 
It's very, but it's terribly real. You need, to, you need to be aware of it and see what the root of it is. The root of it isn't ultimately people, but it's a terrible thing that's happened. Jesus faced this phenomenon. We read in the Gospels that we see that he didn't have conflict with sinners. In fact, they were drawn to him. Sinners loved him. His opposition came from religious people. And his harsh statements were directed at them. Look at John chapter 8. Start at verse 19. So they were saying to him, and this is him in a, in a dialogue again with religious, religious leaders. Where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now stop for a second. Why do you think they asked him where his father was? They're accusing him of being an illegitimate son. Yeah, the word, everybody knows this. I mean, the situation is Mary was pregnant uh, before. Where's your father? He says, you don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Do you notice that? If you knew God, you'd recognize me. If you like him, really, you'd like me because I'm his son. I'm just like him. Your hatred toward me, it shows how you really feel toward the real God. See, religious people have a God, but not the real one. Let your eye go down. Let's just look at verse 42. I got a whole section there, but I don't have time to all read it all. It's all good. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father... No, forgive me. Look at, I, I can't ignore the insult they, they, they toss out. Um, verse 39, we'll start. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. He didn't try to kill me. Now, when, on, when would that have happened? What is Jesus saying here? You remember three men walking into Abraham's camp? One of whom was Yahweh, the pre-incarnate Jesus. And Jesus says, when I came to Abraham's camp, Abraham and Sarah served me dinner. By the way, it wasn't a kosher meal. Meat and milk and the same thing. Anyway. He said, Abraham welcomed me. Abraham and I talked and dialogued over whether, uh, how many, how many uh, believers it would take to, to be in the, the city of Sodom before I would save it, trying to save his nephew Lot. Remember, it came down to 10, which is the basis of a synagogue. That's why they say 10 adult males have to be a synagogue, because of that story about Sodom. 10 would have saved the city. And he, and he says, when I, when I talked with Abraham, he, he was fine with me. In fact, he will later on say, before Abraham was... I am. And they picked up stones to kill him because he was claiming to be divine. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we're not born of fornication. See it? As you are. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, and I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. That's a profound statement. Jesus said, the Father sent me here. I didn't even come on my own initiative. We often think Jesus is the nice one and the Father's grumpy. And, and Jesus said, must have said something like, oh, Dad, no, no, don't kill him. Let me go down and die for him. Oh, all right. And Jesus says, my being, he sent me. It's his idea that I'm here. I didn't come up with this. He sent me because he loves you. The problem, what is the problem? Strong religious feelings are not the same as knowing God. You understand? 
people can be enormous religious. That's why sometimes people say, well, they're going to a church, not a very good church. I don't think the gospel's preached, but at least they're going to church. I would go, oh, heaven, stop them immediately. Bad religions, worse than no religion. Nothing seals the heart, damages the thinking. Nothing twists you worse than bad religion. You're not trying to get people religious. You're trying to get them to meet the living God, the real one, the true one. And when he comes, it isn't religion, it's relationship. He changes just profoundly. Strong religious feelings are not the same as knowing God. In fact, religion is often a hindrance to knowing the true God. Why? Why was a gathering of Jews in Smyrna persecuting the following followers of the Jewish Messiah? What's wrong with this picture? I think the answer is quite simple. Another powerless religion is really no threat at all. We can arrogantly dismiss its followers as misguided and ignore them. But when God actually shows up and does miracles and changes lives, it provokes fear in religious hearts. If God is blessing you, then I must be on the wrong path. And unless I'm humble enough to admit it and change, then my only option is to destroy the evidence. You see, when God shows up, and, and it's not in my camp, either I've got to change or I've got to destroy the evidence. Let me show you some rem absolutely breathtaking examples of this. Go to John 9. That would be about one page to your right. Verse 30. Let me tell you what's happened. A man who's about 40 years old now has been healed by Jesus and he had been born, came out of the womb blind. So he has been blind for 40 years, totally blind. There's absolute impossibility of seeing and he has been healed and he's seeing and people are, I mean, a huge stir has taken place of this. Now, the, the religious leaders are not pleased at all. They're highly upset by this. They call him in and said, what happened to you? And so he tells them, uh, I, was, I was healed. Uh, and, and then they, 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 they said, is this really the right guy? Has somebody switched? I mean, are there twins here? Is there, you know, they're going through this. How on earth can you explain this? Bring in his parents. They said, yep, it's our son. They said, how did he get healed? Now, they know that if they say, well, Jesus did it, that they're going to get thrown out of the synagogue. They'll be dis, dis, disfellowshipped. So they say, he's old enough. Ask him. We don't know. <laughs> you know sorry, son. Now, I love the way this guy talks to them. He gets really impudent. And I, mean, for, I, I guess I'm not encouraging that, but I sure do like what I see. Look, look at verse 27. John 9. He answered them. Uh, 26. They said to him, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already. And you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to be his disciples too, do you? I mean, isn't that, see what I mean? Right in your face, man. <laughs> this guy's been healed. He is so touched. He doesn't care what they do to him. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. And the man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing that you don't know where he's from. And yet he opened my eyes. Some leaders you are. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, he's sassy. We know, verse 31, that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, this is, this is from the man. He hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you are born entirely in sins. In other words, your blindness was a punishment for your wickedness. And are you teaching us, you wimp? Show you, how dare you get healed? 
you're out of here. His crime is he now sees, after 40 years of being a man born blind, his eyes are open, he sees as well as they do, and a miracle that is staggering has taken place, and so get him out of here. Now, this next one is the creme de la creme. John 12. This, this, is, this one is just uh, breathtaking. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are a distinguished family that lives in Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem, on the road to Jericho. Uh, the, you recall that Lazarus became ill. It was reported to Jesus, your, your friend is ill. Jesus lo- loved this family. He would stop there on his way and, and stay with them. And we've got, we've got several wonderful stories of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But Lazarus, if you recall, he was told he's ill, and he actually stayed where he was and delayed and arrived, and, and, and Lazarus had been dead for four days. He's, already, he's in the tomb, stone across it, etc. Jesus arrives, and, and you still have a wake going. You have the area full of religious leaders. It's a prestigious family. This is not just any old buddies. These are highly thought of family in Israel. And so you've got, you've got religious leaders still there. They knew him. They're, all, they're still having an ongoing going wake in the situation. And Jesus shows up, and he, and he says, roll away the stone. And Martha, being the practical one, you recall, said, Master, by now it stinks in there. We really would rather leave the stone across it. And he says, believe, you know. And they roll the stone away. Lazarus, come forth. And out he comes, you know, like a woman in a tight skirt, because he's all wrapped up. They do. They wrap him all up. So he's, he, he wasn't a dramatic entrance. It, was, it would have been something on this order. He's coming out, and, and he's all bound up like a, in, 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 in cloths. And they, he says, unbind him. All right, so that has taken place. And in front of everybody, they all know him. They know the credibility of the family. This is not some ruse. I mean, these guys have grown up with Lazarus. They know him. They love him. And their friend is dead, and they know he's dead. And now they know he's alive. I mean, it's, this is a shockwave going through uh, the religious leadership, not just, not just Israel. Now, watch what happens here. Verse 9, chapter 12. The large crowd of Jews. And when John says Jews, he's not talking about the Jewish people in general. He is one. He's talking about the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. It's what they call themselves. We're the true Jews. So he uses that phrase. You have to make that distinction. The large crowd of religious leaders then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. They want to poke him and ask him, did you see anything on the other side? I mean, you know, there's, you know. But chief priests planned to put Lazarus, what? To death also. Because on account of him, many Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. We'll show you. How dare you come back to life from the dead? We'll kill you. I mean, this, is, this gets, this gets it's beyond ridiculous. It's sort of frightening stupid, isn't it? And why on earth would anyone want to kill a man for coming back to life? You have to snuff out the evidence. Either they've got to say, he is Messiah, and then repent, or they have to kill Lazarus and try to calm down and spin the situation and deal with the evidence. It's war. This isn't some accident. This isn't just idiocy. It's religious war. Religious people. It's, when he says Jews, he's talking about religious leaders here. It's the leaders, these most religious people with all their, their paraphernalia. They're the ones at war with God. Paul explains the process. 
He goes right into the heart. I want you to see this. Go to Romans 9 with me. In Romans chapters 9 through 11, those three chapters are a consistent argument. They are an answer to this question. They are not a teaching on predestination. He's addressing a very serious question. He's asking, why have so few Jews responded to the gospel? After all, God had done over the centuries to prepare them. Why did so many reject their Messiah? Listen to, listen to verses 1 through 5. He expresses his amazement and his sorrow. Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now let me stop a second. This man has already had a profound out-of-body experience. He has, I think it took place at Lystra where he was stoned. Uh, by, the, by the crowd, carried out virtually dead, and they prayed over him, and he came back to life. I think at that point, he, he, he literally went and saw, he says, the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about it. And he says, I, I, I literally saw the presence of God. So when he says what he just said, he says, literally, I love my people so much. I love the house of Israel so dearly. That if I could spend, if I would spend eternity in hell, if that would mean that they would be saved, I would do it. Would you say that? I don't think I could. The only one I've seen with that love is, is the Lord himself. I mean, this is stunning. He's, this is not a, this man doesn't bluff. He's, he's, if any man follows through on what he says, he meant it. And he says, I love them like this. But he says, I, I, even that wouldn't do any good. He says, who, and, and I'll listen to him to describe Israel, who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons. In other words, God had adopted that nation as his own. And the glory, that's the Shekinah, the presence of the Holy Spirit that was, was in the tabernacle and over it. And, and the covenants, covenant not, not only with, with Moses, but with Noah, with, with Abraham, on and on. And the giving of the law, and the service, that would have been the tabernacle service and the promises, all of the beautiful Ark of the Covenant and the, all of the wonderful things that explained Christ and the, the, the shedding of blood and the, the need for blood. Whose are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And from whom is the Messiah, according to the flesh? Who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. All, here's the problem, for millennia, literally millennia, God has been working with his people, preparing them. Virtually, in my opinion, from the Garden of Eden, you have the first indication of what he would do, that someone would come and crush the serpent's head. That there would always the promise, always the blood, always the explanation. God has been working and preparing and laying a foundation with his people for thousands of years. And then when Messiah does arrive, they, they have him crucified. What is wrong with this picture? How could that possibly have happened? Some believed but so many turned against him. And, and that, it didn't just happen in Jerusalem. Paul is going all over the, the Mediterranean world, and he comes into a town, and the first place he goes is into the synagogue, and he preaches the gospel. And some believe, and after a week or two, they want to kill him. The, 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 the majority do. He keeps running into this. And then so he goes out to the Gentiles. These den Gentiles, and they don't know up. And he preaches the gospel, and they go, I, I believe that, you know. They're, they're getting baptized in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Nine Yards. So you got all these Greeks, you know. And then, meanwhile, the, the people, his, fam, his, his, his kinsmen, are trying to have him killed. Something's wrong here. Is God a bad teacher? 
Did God fail? Is he a lousy preparer of his people so that, so that if he had done a better job, they would have welcomed Messiah? How could he have done so poorly? That's what those chapters are all about. It's a huge question. In 9, 6 through 13, he, gives, he, he answers it. Listen to what he says. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's speaking to his people and all that he's done. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Paul says the problem is nominality. There are many people who are by name Jews, but have not had a heart relationship with God. They are not, for, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. You can be his physical descendants, but not his spiritual descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And he begins to talk about how even with, with, the, with the fathers of Israel, they could have two children, Esau and Jacob, and one would be a child of faith and one would be a child without faith. And the promise would go to the one and not to the other. That all through their history, God has taken the one with faith. In chapter, in chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, he says, God will use those Jews who reject Christ for his purposes, even as he used Pharaoh in Egypt. They have and will drive the gospel out to the Gentiles who've been willing to receive it humbly. So God has given many Gentiles mercy as he promised through the prophets. He's, he, he begins to say, God can use hardened people for his purposes, and in this case, he will drive the gospel out. And then Paul, by the way, and I don't have it in there, but Paul in chapter 11 says, but this will come full circle. The Gentiles full of the Spirit will bring the gospel back to the people of Israel, and in time, all there will be believers in all. That's what he concludes. In 9.30, and that's where I want you to look, chapter 9, verse 30, he states the principle which separates those who receive God's mercy and those he hardens. He calls it the stumbling stone. And he says the stumbling stone is this. Some people find it offensive to be told that their own good works aren't good enough. They refuse to step out and trust the righteousness of faith. And that decision ensures the hardening of their hearts. Are you, are you tracking with this? Look what he says, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they didn't even know the real God, attend, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? I'm going to say it, and then I want you to say it. Because they did not pursue it by faith. Say that. Why didn't they arrive at the true God with all of that in their hand? What was wrong? What happened in their heart that was the mis misstep? They pursued God by law, not by faith. Now, God gave the law, but it's, he never intended it to replace humility and repentance and a relationship with him. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in, and notice the rock is not a, a, an object, it's a, in him, it's a person, the Messiah, will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal. They're religious, but not in accordance with knowledge, true knowledge of how to be saved. For not knowing about God's righteousness, how to really attain it, and seeking to establish their own by their own works, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes. 
They refuse to step out and trust the righteousness of faith. And that decision ensures the hardening of the heart. Paul says, that's the root. Now go with me. I want you to see Jesus' explanation. John 6. We're going to apply this in a minute. We got to get right to the core. How on earth can religious people become the opponents of God? Start at verse 36. Jesus says, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I'm going to stop there. That verse is used by people to argue for predestination. They say, see, it's the one God gives him that's going to come to him. And the one God doesn't give to him won't come to him. See, God picks. Hang on. For I have not come down. I I just got to read these. For I have come down. From heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Would you read verse 40 out loud with me? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. To behold the Son is to understand who he is, to get it. Those who see me, says Jesus, and believe, will be given eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I stand on that one, do you? I love that verse. Hallelujah. Go with me next to verse 64 and 65, just in the same chapter. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now, he's implying that there are people that God gives the gospel to, and people that God does not give the gospel to. The term that's used by a lot of people is the elect. God, Paul will use it. The elect, the chosen ones. Who is it? Who is the elect? I'm going to show you. Actually, Jesus is. Go with me to Luke chapter 10. Verse 21. The 70 have come back. They've been out two by two carrying on the ministry of the Lord. Power of God has been on them. They've seen mighty wonders. Demons have come out of people. They are rejoicing. Jesus says, verse 20, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And then the Lord goes into uh, an adoration of the Father. He begins to speak a prayer out loud. Just his heart, I'm sure he turned his eyes to heaven and he just began to speak to his father. And listen to what he says. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from who? The wise and intelligent and have revealed them to who? The elect. Who are the elect? He just told you. Infants. Who are infants? Except you become as a little child. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? What what does he want from a little child? What does a child have? Humility doesn't presume they have everything coming. Uh, Teachability. Trust. Soft heart. He says, if you are a childlike, the gospel will come to you. Father, I'm glad that you have hidden it from one group. The proud, the self-righteous, the ones unwilling to humble themselves or repent or change. And you have revealed me to the babes, to the infants, to the, to the humble hearts, to those willing to hear 
and listen. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. Then he illustrates this parable with a parable. Luke 18. Verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Look at that. And did what? Viewed others with contempt. He told a parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were self-righteous. They were legalistic. They were Pharisees in that sense. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. By the way, all Pharisees aren't bad. They had basically conservative theology, but it ended up with this very problem Paul pointed to. He was a Pharisee, that they began to use it by works as a ladder to heaven rather than how it was intended. And I'll tell you in a minute. The Pharisee stood and was praying to this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, not once, twice. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee is proud, self-righteous, and despises those who fail to meet his standards. Notice the standards the Pharisee has set for himself as the mark of true righteousness. What, what are his standards? Look at it again. I fast twice a week, not once. I tithe all I get. I, and bottom line, God, I'm better than him. Now, that's an important part of this. Pharisees, all, everybody senses, I mean, you can all, nobody, you have to be just completely out of touch to not see your own failures. So somehow you got to judge something in your mind and say, well, now I have my weaknesses, but I'm better than, than they are. It reminds me of a joke. <laughs> Don't tell many of these. A couple of men out bear hunting. And they come across fresh tracks. Whoa, they've just, just been made. And they're standing there looking at these bear tracks. And suddenly there's a rustling in the bush right beside them. And they go, oh, and the one, one guy turns and he's, about, he's on his way to run. And the other one sits on a the, on the log that's right there, takes his backpack off and starts changing his shoes, putting on his tennis shoes. And the guy says, what are you doing? He says, you can't outrun that bear. The guy says, I don't have to. All I have to do is outrun you. There's a theological point here. <laughs> you see it? A lot of people say, I just am better than my brother-in-law. I mean, yeah, I got my problems, but I'm better than them. You know? God's going to be fair here. He's going to have to let me in. Self-justification. Pharisaical attitudes. Now, let's apply it. The effect of listening to God's word without, without humility, repentance, and faith produces pride, righteousness, and contempt for sinners. Real Christians are constant repenters. Say constant repenters. Anyone who really knows the Lord is constantly repenting because the Holy Spirit is constantly convicting you. Amen? Amen? Have you met people who call themselves Christians who are never wrong? Something, I'm serious, something is dreadfully out of place with that picture. I would question their walk with God. The God I walk with deals with me all the time. 
Repentance and acknowledging my failure is a normal part of my life and my day. To be somehow so knotheaded that you are always right, you probably are always right with God too. Don't tell me you're humble and tender and constantly repenting and then you're a knothead over here. No, you aren't. No, you aren't. You're probably real proud of yourself with God too. And if you are, you don't know him. You're one of these. The Pharisee had to reinterpret the Bible so he could successfully obey it. He had to dumb it down to where he could fulfill it in his own mind. This process of dumbing it down is what Jesus prevented by the Sermon on the Mount. In effect, he said, here is what the Ten Commandments really mean. Last place, Matthew 5. I'm going to just give you a sample, just so you have it in front of you. In the, ten, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes several of the commandments right out of the, out of the, out of the Ten Commandments, and he explains them. While you're turning there, let me tell you a story. When I was in college, I had a Bible study in my room, and uh, they called it the Ellingson Chapel, if I recall. And, and we, we were in all kinds of Bible discussion, and guys were coming to know the Lord, and, and this one uh, young man, it was a friend of mine, classmate of mine, he uh, came up to me. I was walking out of the student union, heading back to the, to the dorm room, and he came up to me and he said, have you ever read the Ten Commandments? I mean, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me. And I said, yeah. And, and he said, what do you make of them? I said, what do you mean, what do I make of them? I, I like them. They're good. And he says, he says, he said, Steve, when I read the Ten Commandments, I knew I was in trouble. And he said, and then I read this, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I'm dead meat. He said, I don't have a chance. I am undone. And he was right. Listen, listen to what Jesus does with this. Verse 21, you have heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. One of the Ten Commandments. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. What is he doing? He takes the Ten Commandments and you, th you say, well, I think I've kept this. I've not killed anybody. And he says, no, no, what God was really looking for is right into your heart that you would not murder anyone even in your heart or dehumanize them. Anyone here not guilty? Listen to this, verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust in her heart has committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, great. I'm thinking I'm all right because I haven't slept with anybody other than my wife. And, and then the God comes along and says, so what about your mind? Have you lusted or looked at people? Anyone in here not guilty? Huh? Yeah, the women. Come on now. That, that thing goes both directions. <laughs> I thought about it, making it inclusive, and I thought, no, they understand that. <laughs> it goes on. It goes on with all sorts of things. And by the time he's done, listen, what was Jesus' goal for the Sermon on the Mount? To drive us into the arms of grace. To, rem to render all attempts at self-righteousness to be hopeless. By the time he's done with you, no one's left standing. All are under judgment. All have to come before a holy God and say, I have failed. I cannot live your standards. Right? To show us how desperately we need the righteousness that comes only by faith. In other words, to frustrate our attempts 
to become Pharisees. There's a tendency in every one of us, I think it's rooted in, in human pride, to justify ourselves. Something's bitter about becoming pitiable, to being hopelessly trapped in your failure, to have to have God pity you and have mercy on you because you have no capacity to deserve or to earn his favor. Isn't that galling? Isn't it awkward? Isn't it uncomfortable to say, I'm helplessly trapped? And accept, O oh God, you are merciful to me and have pity on me. I will perish. But to the person who refuses to say that and says, no, I'll be better than that. I will be righteous by my own doing. I'll handle this. I will live in such obedience that God will be pleased with me. Not out of a thanks, but out of an achievement. You're at war with God. And you will become hard and pharisaical. And you will hate the mercy of God. You will hate it when he saves and heals and works in people's lives. You will look down on others and become proud of who you are. Critical in spirit. And I think all of us have that tendency. And so how beautiful it is when he brings us to his table over and over again. And says, the only righteousness which will make you presentable to the Father is that which comes as a gift by faith. You will never deserve it. You must receive it by faith and cling to my righteousness, my death, my broken body, my pierced body was for you. I died your death. I took your curse. I suffered your punishment. I got what you deserve. And if you will embrace my cross, I will put my holiness, my purity, my righteousness, my worthiness over you as a gift. Paul says, Paul says there, he says, as to the law, he said, I was found blameless. In his own mind, though, he admits in Romans 7 that he blew it on coveting. And he says, he says I, I, I've lived, man, I lived the, the life as best I could. But he says, I count my own righteousness, all that I have, as rubbish. That I might possess the only source of true saving righteousness, which is the righteousness of faith. Today, are you willing to cast aside your own goodness? I'm not talking about stop trying to become holy and seek the Lord and serve him. But we're talking about what do you trust in? Where is your faith resting? Are you willing to cast that aside and say, only through Christ? When I stand before him someday, I will not in any way point to my own life and say, look at all the good things I've done. I will say, Lord, I have nothing to offer you except your blood shed for me. I have trusted in you and your gift of righteousness has covered my life. Would you bow your heads just one moment and just let me ask this question. Anyone here, as I've been talking, you'd say, you know, I recognize that pharisaical thing wanting to slip into my heart. I've recognized myself being comparative to others and it's really rather proud. And sometimes when I come to the table of the Lord, I, I have a hard time thinking, now let's see, have I done any sins? I don't know. And I, I, I'm, I'm, be, I'm becoming, something's wrong here. I, I'm not clinging to the cross alone, but I'm beginning to become very pleased with my own righteousness. Anybody got to raise your hand right now and say, that's me. And I'm setting it aside and I'm, I'm calling it rubbish with Paul. 
It doesn't mean everything you've done is bad. We're not saying everything you've done is worthless by any means, but you're not trusting it in the slightest. You're putting it aside and say, I renounce it entirely. I do it because I love him. I, I'm going to try to obey him because he's my God. I want to be like him. But I'm not earning anything by it. Would you lift your hand if that's you? Hallelujah. Go ahead. If that's you, you need to just renounce it right now so you can embrace his righteousness wholeheartedly. Blessed be Jesus. In fact, let's just, you got, just keep your hand up for a minute. Just pray with me a minute. Heavenly Father, this day, I thank you for Jesus. I recognize in myself, I am a sinner. When, you, when I hear the Sermon on the Mount, when I hear what you really expect, I am rendered helpless. I'm a, I recognize I cannot make myself righteous. I refuse to dumb it down to some silly religious rules I keep. I put my arms around the cross of your son. And I believe Jesus has died for me. His blood is shed for me. He took my punishment. He bore my sin. He, his body is scarred with my scars. For I should have died. And he died for me. I receive today again the righteousness of Christ. In no way do I trust my own. I call it rubbish that I might have the righteousness which comes only as a gift to those who believe. Jesus, I behold you and I believe in you with all my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.